I wanted to make sure that if something were to happen to me, I want there to be something for my wife and my daughter. And I want that security in knowing that if I were to suddenly have some freak health accident or fall off the roof installing the Starlink or whatever, right, then, you know, we'll, we'll be okay. For my wife, right, part of it was, can we afford that monthly premium? And the way that I look at it is, how can we not afford that, right? We have to pay for that. And so like we talked about, right, the way that we look at money individually is inherently different. And you may not even realize how your spouse, your partner, your friend, your client looks at money until you get into these financial flashpoints. You have to do some digging. You have to ask the right questions and do a lot of listening and a lot of of follow-ups, a lot of mirroring to make sure that you're understanding where they're coming from before you can get that whole picture. Welcome to the Healthy Love and Money podcast. If you find money to be the number one, two, or even third largest source of stress in your relationship, then you're in the right place. Going beyond how to budget, invest, and do your taxes, we're going to explore financial intimacy. Discover how to talk with your partner about your shared financial life. Let's take the awkward and painful out-of-money conversations. Join me and hit follow to listen to weekly inspiring, healing, and motivating interviews with financial therapists, couples therapists, and financial planners, and so many more. Let's go on the journey of financial intimacy together. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Healthy Love and Money podcast. Today, I have the distinct honor of welcoming Aaron Freeman to the show. Now, Aaron is a bright, smart, talented, kind, and thoughtful, aspiring financial planner. And I had the great honor of meeting him about six months ago in San Diego at a financial planning conference. And he struck up the conversation with me. And I was just immediately taken by his interest and desire to become truly a top-tier financial planner. And I wanted to bring him on the show because he's so passionate about not just financial planning, but also the psychology of financial planning. And so he's going to be sharing a lot about what he's been learning there and how that applies to the financial planning process. So if you're in for a real treat, Aaron, thank you and welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on, Ed. It's an honor to be here and I'm excited to, to see where this conversation goes and to talk about the psychology of financial planning. Absolutely. Well, I think the psychology of financial planning is such a new area of work that most people have never even really heard of this. And they may not even know that their financial planner may be developing skills in this area. And the fact that you're coming through college and getting it right out of the gate is just so incredible. Yeah, it's really been a huge treat. And as you know, the CFP board, right, they're starting to lean into the psychology of financial planning more. There are some questions on that topic popping up on the exam. And so my professor... Dr. Taft Dorman, he really wanted to help us out with our exposure to the psychology of financial planning. And he's been really kind of driving in our... So BYU-Idaho, where I go to school, we have an extracurricular financial planning club called the Wealth Management Society. And that's in addition to the current financial uh, CFP board certified financial planning minor that we have on campus. Uh And at the society, he has been really working on getting us to look at the psychology of financial planning. Uh, He's also had the University of Georgia uh, come over and talk about their behavioral finance program. And so this psychology of financial planning field 
has been of real interest to me uh, recently, especially as it relates to more of the interpersonal side of financial planning, uh, more than just the technical side, because you can always right, take an Excel course. You can always go and, and do an e-money certification or all these different ways of improving your technical knowledge. But interpersonal communication skills are critical to have from the get-go, right? That really helps with your with your meeting with clients, especially at someone who's just going to be starting out here in December. It's a little daunting going and talking to clients. And so having this foundation from the beginning in the psychology of financial planning, how I can talk to these clients, how I can approach them, especially from a young age, relatively young age, it has been really fruitful for me. It's so exciting. I'm glad to hear that. And so, you know, as you're listening and hearing Aaron talk is we've got a great young man who's coming into the profession. He's excited about it. And as a consumer, when you're thinking about working with a financial planner, what you don't know is how are financial planners trained or not trained? And this is, I want to get people behind the curtain, right? And the, the field of financial planning is professionalizing more and more. There are more and more programs with undergraduate degrees in financial planning. And master's degrees, even that. And Aaron, we haven't talked about this. Maybe you'll go on and get a master's degree. I bet you probably will at some point. That's my hunch. Maybe you might even get a doctorate. That would be, who knows? That The future is yet to be written, right? But if you're listening to this podcast episode, what I want you to know is not all financial planners or advisors are created equal. And this is not to be mean or critical, but learning the process of comprehensive financial planning is really so important because all the technical pieces are deeply interrelated with each other. And at the same time, we're working with you, a human, a living, breathing, live human who has all kinds of life ideals and experiences and past experiences that are shaping your experience. And so we're trying to blend who you are, who you've been, who you're trying to become with all of your financial information and mash it up and get something really kind of cool, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Especially with the advent you know, of AI and robo-advisors, a lot of the technical stuff, as I've said before, that can largely be automated. And so as financial planners, it's important to be able to talk to clients about who they are, who they want to be, right? And lead them more on that more EQ side rather than the IQ side, because that's going to be something that's almost impossible to do with AI. Right. So the AI can gather financial information. We have incredible financial planning software. One of them is called eMoney. I use Right Capital. So clients, you know, you're working with a planner, they should have a software that helps crunch all the numbers and start to identify places where there might be opportunities for change. The real challenge is when you're working with your financial planner, they're going to identify places where you need to change. But if they don't know how to help you integrate the change into your life, then the recommendation falls flat. So in the psychology of financial planning, what did you learn about how people grow and change? Yeah. So with the psychology of financial planning, it talks a lot about heuristics and biases. Now, I can't off the top of my head remember what heuristics meant, but to be honest with you, but with biases, right, we, we all have a set of, of biases or a tendency towards an action or a belief. So for example, a well, like a confirmation bias, right? You want you're searching for avenues to confirm what you believe. You are maybe pulling things out of the air or looking for things that aren't necessarily correlated, but maybe 
coincidentally fit into something that you're trying to believe. And so it, you're trying to reinforce that belief because it's important to you for some reason. And that can take a huge play into your financial life as well. If you say like, or you have a particular stock and it's going up and you want to buy more into that stock, but as it starts to go down, you're looking for ways to justify that, that purchase of, or that investment in that particular stock. And you're wanting that to be correct because as humans, we don't like to be wrong. And so you want to feel validated in that regard. And so there, there's a lot of that that goes into the psychology of financial planning. There is aversion to loss bias, right? As humans, we love the gain, right? As in financial planners, we love to get our clients alpha or as much return as possible. But one of the reasons that we're seeing tax planning being so prolific right now is that while clients love to see more money in their bank accounts, what they really love and what really strikes an emotional chord in them is averting loss. If you can go to a client and say, hey, you were going to have to pay $300,000 in taxes, say as a hypothetical, but instead, you know, with this tax planning work that we've done, you only have to pay 100000 They averted 200000 in loss. And that's a, a huge feeling for someone rather than just, oh, hey, your portfolio returned $200,000 more. There's a huge stark difference in, in feeling with that. The psychological experience of loss versus gain is different. I think I've seen some research that says we almost feel loss, but a potential for loss two to one to gain. So a $200,000 net positive gain from your investment going up versus I had I was going to have to spend this $300,000 in taxes and now I'm going to have to spend $200,000 or $100,000. It's the net same dollar effect. But the psychological impact is far bigger when it's like, oh, I was going to lose that money because people frame paying taxes as losing money more often than they do seeing it as gaining a benefit. Most people don't see paying taxes as I'm gaining all these benefits by paying my tax dollars, which makes me so happy. You know, I'm supporting the government and roadways and police officers and all the other things that taxes pay for. No one sits and thinks, God, I'm just so glad I'm paying taxes this year to support the, <laughs> you know, the local roads and the government offices and so on. But at least most of us probably don't. That I don't know. That's why you have so many right, accountants and CPAs doing this work and People pay good money for this for this service because they want to feel like they're not losing all that money, even though it may indirectly give them a benefit. Yeah. So you got confirmation biases, and, and there's a number of different psychological biases that have been identified that impact the way we relate to money. What else did you learn about kind of the psychology of financial planning? So you got biases. What else did you learn? Yeah, so we also learned a lot about how to potentially dismantle an extreme situation. And a lot of that has to do with kind of just giving space in in the conversation. When there is, a, say, a, you need to give space between a stimulus and a response. And as human beings, right, often we don't do that. And so we come off with rash reactions. You see that all around us, right? Wars, even in marriages or in friendships, right? One little thing triggers and you don't give a little bit of pause to think about that how you're going to react. And then suddenly a friendship is destroyed. Divorces happen. Countries go to war. In the financial planning context, 
money is inherently emotional, right? I'm sure I don't need to, to explain that. I'm sure we all know that, right? Well, but let's actually slow down there. Do explain it for a minute because I think it's easy to take that as a foregone assumption, but I don't know that everyone sees it that way. When you say money is emotional, what does that mean to you? Yeah, for me, right, I look at it as like money is emotional because it provides security and safety. Without money, I don't have a roof over my head. I don't have food on the table, right? My daughter doesn't have clothes to wear. And with money, right, you, you have those things. So it's an inherent security. And so when you start playing with, quote unquote, playing with money and managing that money in a relationship, emotions can get really tense because when you're talking, say, with your spouse or your partner about, are we going to invest more into our Roth IRA this this month? That could be less money for maybe fun things to do, but specifically, it could be less money for food on the table. It could be less money for this or that. And that is in large part why you get a lot of these emotional reactions around money, but also it can go even deeper than that, right? I mean, you look at psychology, you look at financial planning, I look at it as an iceberg. And a lot of what we see normal financial planners do, right, that's kind of the tip of the iceberg, that that bit that you can see out above the water. But as you delve deeper into kind of the inner workings and the psychology of financial planning, that's that bottom of the iceberg that you can't really see very much. But the deeper you go, the more there is. And with money situations, you could have someone who is enabling their child to not work or to do whatever because they because the child is say and we I say child this could definitely be you know an adult child say they they have drug problems and so they're not able to keep a job and the parent feels beholden to that child right as a parent you want to take care of your child you don't want them to be on the street you don't want them to be hungry but in return, they're enabling that person, right? That's a situation that you have to be able to navigate carefully. That's a really extreme situation. A lot of it is giving that space, and not only for a reaction or a response to a stimulus, but also just giving space in the conversation for there to for trust to flower and for the other person you're talking to to feel heard and to feel understood. Because if someone's not feeling heard or understood, they're going to shell up they're going to put those walls up and you're never going to make any progress with anything whether it be money or how is your day going <laughs> hey everyone thank you so much for listening to the healthy love and money podcast i'm honored that you spend time with me listening to these incredible interviews i love working with individuals and couples around their financial life integrating mental health and relational well-being I'd love to personally invite you into my financial planning practice where I do therapy-informed financial planning, bringing together mental health, relationship health, and financial well-being. If you're thinking that's the type of help you'd like, please see the show notes below to schedule your free 30-minute discovery call. And I'll look forward to seeing you and hearing more about your unique story and how I can best support you. Now, back to the show. Yeah, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to slow down on that because it, it's easy to take it for granted that money is emotional and that we tie emotional meaning to money and safety and security are foundational psychological needs, right? And money helps to meet those needs as a tool. And what we, 
was kind of right there. And I think with your building on that iceberg is right. You may be talking with your wife about, should we save for the future, financial security in the future or groceries, right? And I'm making this up. I don't know if it's true for you guys, but you're like, we need the financial security in the future. So we should be saving $500 a month. Meanwhile, your wife is thinking, we've got this cute little girl and she needs a new set of dress and a, and more good food. And then you're at loggerheads. You're like fighting over $500. Well, why don't we just do 200 You're always worried about the future. And round around in the circle it goes, right? And yet what we know is beneath the iceberg, there might be, and I'm making this story up about you and your wife, so forgive me, but maybe you watch your parents struggle with money and they don't have any retirement savings. So you're really anxious about having enough in the future. So that's the iceberg. The deeper emotional meaning is, I've really lived with my parents not having any money and I'm scared about the future. Meanwhile, she maybe lived also with parents struggling with money but she didn't have good quality food and a new dress and felt was teased for having a hand-me-down dress. I'm making things up that I've heard, you know, but this is that iceberg of the emotional meaning of money starts long before the conversation that we're having today about how much money to save for the future. And if we get pulled into that trap of, Oh, it's a conversation about saving for the future versus buying food and clothes. It is. And it isn't. Yeah, that's exactly right. They talk about financial flashpoints, and that is largely what we were just talking about, right? For example, so in reality, right, my, my parents did struggle with money. And so that was a huge flashpoint for me, and that's really shaped how I view my financial situation. It makes me not want to spend money because I feel like I'm not going to have enough, and so I ha- have to like hoard it. And so my wife and I do kind of get at odds sometimes because she wants for example, right? She wants to get nice, cute clothes for our daughter, which I want to as well. Or recently, even, we need new shoes. And we went to go shoe shopping. And it was inherently painful for me because, you know, my shoes still work. They're still fine. I would much rather put that money towards something else that we've had to talk about is life insurance, right? I'd rather much, I'd much rather put that money towards life insurance, because uh, we had a health scare with my wife where suddenly she got an autoimmune condition that really kind of that kind of shook our world a little bit because it made it made things a little scary and i wanted to make sure that if something were to happen to me i want you know there to be something for my wife and my daughter and i want that security and knowing that if i were to suddenly have some freak health accident or fall off the roof installing the starlink or whatever right then you know we'll we'll be okay for my wife, right, part of it was, can we afford that, right? Can we afford that monthly premium? And the way that I look at it is, how can we not afford that, right? We have to pay for that. And so there, there's this, like we talked about, right, the way that we look at money individually is inherently different. And you may not even realize how your spouse, your partner, your friend, your client looks at money until you get into these financial flashpoints. You have to do some digging. You have to ask the right questions and do a lot of listening and a lot of of follow-ups, a lot of mirroring to make sure that you're understanding where they're coming from before you can get that whole picture. Wow. I appreciate you sharing a little bit about your family story and how that's shaped some of the underlying experiences. And I think it's so powerful because that's true. And I know my experience, a big part of why I got into financial planning is my childhood perception was that my mom was pretty frustrated with the way my dad would spend money. and I couldn't make sense out of it because I thought it was for fixing up the house. And so like 
that was my child view. And I've matured and I now realize there's more to it. But that legacy still leaves sometimes some anxiety about when I go to spend money, how's my wife going to respond to that? And so we all have these different stories with different flavors. And I think you made such a beautiful point, Aaron, is sometimes you can't recognize where you're going to have those financial uh, sticking points in making current day decisions like life insurance. Like if we had asked you three years ago, you're newlywed, and hey, what do you guys think about buying life insurance? It'll, maybe it didn't even feel relevant, right? Because you're like, we're not going to die. We're young. We're fine. Right. <laughs> right? And then it's like, then you have this autoimmune disorder show up, and then you have a child, and all of a sudden, like, the reality of life insurance means something very different to you now than it did three years ago. And so it's not like we could have asked you in premarital counseling or something and be like, hey, what do you guys think about life insurance? What do you think about disability insurance? What do you think about... I mean, to some extent, you can think of, say, well, what about saving for the future and how do you prioritize that? But some of it is not until you get in the meat of it. You know, I was talking with a couple yesterday about, well, they're going to want kids in the future. And she says, well, right now, I think I'm going to want to work full time. And okay, that's fine. We can make plans around that. Just let's hold an open mind that that may shift when you get to that point in time. And that's why financial planning is an ongoing process, not a one-time event. Right. That's exactly right. You're seeing and getting trained on in school is like financial planning is this ongoing kind of conversation. It's not a singular event. Right. I've been working on some case studies. And one of them in particular was this young family that just got pregnant. And it's hard to even put a financial plan, like a retirement financial plan together for a young family because they don't even know what they want out of retirement, right? That's not even something that you even start thinking about until you're probably in your 40s. So I did the case study. I put together like this basic plan. Like if you start doing these things, you will be able to do what you currently say you want to do in retirement. But that's something where you want to come back five years. You want to come back in 10 at least. You know, obviously you want to continue the engagement, but you need to have those check-in points throughout their life because life changes. For example, in my life, financial planning was not my first choice. I didn't even know financial planning existed when I went to college. I started at Boise State in here in Boise, Idaho, and I was a physics major and I was a music minor. I played the bassoon in orchestras and I was on a music scholarship. I was in the marching band. And my goal was to go to eventually make it to a doctorate program in Cambridge, become a British dual citizen and go work at CERN and their particle accelerator. That was my, my master plan. Whoa, wait, hold on. Whoa, this is so cool. I, my brain is blowing up. I love this, Aaron. Yeah, it was crazy. It was, it was a good time. I loved it. And then, so then the plot thickens even more because then I go on a mission for my church in Santiago, Chile for two years. And that completely changed how I viewed life. And so I come back and I decide, okay, I want to go build quantum computers at Google, so I need to be a computer engineering major. They didn't have one at Boise State, so I developed my own, kind of put it together with electrical engineering and physics and computer science. But because I was still on scholarship for bassoon and I was still in the marching band, right, like I was basically a music major. And so from there, that summer, I taught a music, uh, taught bassoon at a music camp. And, which is not something I thought I would be doing. And then I fell in love with teaching the bassoon and with conducting and realized I want to go into music education. I want to be a professional conductor for a symphony orchestra. 
And so I decided that I was going to change majors to music education, and I did, and I loved it. But then I got married, <laughs> and we got pregnant fairly shortly after we were married, and that completely changed the way that I looked at life. Right? I I realized I needed more time. I needed more money for my little family, or at least I wanted more time and more money for my family than a high school band director could unfortunately provide. And so then we transferred to BYU-Idaho where housing was cheaper. And I went into business management looking to get into venture capital and start up a company potentially because, you know, that has a lot of money. Didn't have as much time, though. And that's when I discovered the Wealth Management Society uh, looking for the Series 65 because I had a study group. And that's when I discovered the that financial planning, right, is, is that quantitative that I loved with the physics and the engineering with the qualitative of the music education and getting to build those relationships while working on the numbers. And so that was kind of how things changed for me, right? That I wouldn't have been able to, as a freshman in college, think, okay, I'm going to end up studying financial planning. Because if I had thought of that, I would have just done that from the (laughs) get-go. But that's just not how the cookie crumbled. (laughs) So life changes and we get these flashpoints, right? We get, we get these different experiences and our lives completely change. Our clients' lives completely change in the space of even two or three years. It could even be a month. And say, like, for example, your client, suddenly they have an autoimmune disorder and their entire life changes, right? And you have to completely adjust around that. And you have to be on your toes constantly learning. You have to know your clients intimately in order to be able to really properly give them this financial planning. Yeah, you can do all the numbers, you can run all that, but to really plan with them, with them, you have to intimately know them. I think you're really hitting, it's, I really appreciate the emphasis on with, because I know that my temptation, and probably I do it more often than I realize, is I say planning for, which inherently puts a hierarchical, like, I'm doing this for you, I know where you, and it's like, I love your emphasis. And so for people that are listening, this is one of those things that you may feel this with your planner and not quite know the language to put to it. Do you feel like your partner is side by side with you as an equal partner or are they one up in an authoritative kind of, I know what's best. I'm going to tell you what to do. If that's what works for you, that's okay. But I think my, my view and Aaron, it sounds like your view is, no, I, I want to come alongside you and I want to be curious about what you want. And I want to know your life and your story and how things are changing and then help you sort through what's going to help be right for this next phase. And know that it will continue to evolve. And that's the beauty and art of financial planning is there's principles that are in place that will kind of are always there, right? Like being insured is a good thing. That doesn't really change how life changes. Saving money for your future self, even if you can't fully imagine what role you may be in, we can all reasonably assume that sometime in the future, you're going to want to have money that will support you. What you think you need for that may grow or it may contract as you move through different seasons of life and, and you grow and mature as a person. But we can be pretty sure you're going to have need, financial needs in the future. Yeah, one would hope. <laughs> right? I mean, as long as you're living, you are going to have financial needs. So we can make that assumption and adjust you know, this. And I think this is, I don't know how much you've come across that fire community. There's, I think the point is there's different philosophies about how fast to save for your future. And some people have this philosophy, save absolutely as much as you possibly can now, 
for your future self. Some people kind of approach financial planning with like, I don't want to worry about it. I won't deal with it. I'll just deal with it when I get there. And they never, those are like the extreme ends of like saving for the future is basically, I'm not going to do it because I, I just can't imagine. I just feel too much or I got to get it all figured out. I got to make sure I have this huge bucket of money. And then there's kind of everything in, in between that. So I'm curious, you know, as you're, as you're growing and you're maturing and you're taking all this information, how is it helping you change the way you approach conversations with your wife around money? Yeah, it's allowed me to kind of stop and think instead of just being like, especially, you know, with the life insurance thing, I was like, how could we not, right? How can you like not think now I'm able to stop and think and kind of put myself in her shoes a little bit more. Not everyone thinks like I do. <laughs> not everyone has, she doesn't have the same information that I do. You know, I study this, I'm going to be doing this for a living. And so inherently I might have more technical knowledge than she does. She may not even understand it which is an important thing to consider as well. You know, she may be resisting it just because she doesn't understand it fully. She may not know what that means, you know, or this word or that word, because sometimes I fall into the trap of using jargon <laughs> at home. Well, we all but, yeah. And so, yeah, it's allowed me to really stop and think, put that space in the conversation, that space between stimulus and response. And be able to ask her, like, do you understand what this is? Like, is can I explain more what this is for you? And we really, I've tried to have us sit down together more and talk about this and, and talk about money. What do we want out of life? And I think that that's really the big thing is asking, what do we want? You know, where do we want to be? What do we want to do? And then adjusting for that and maybe understanding that, okay, we want to do this, this, and this. Like, she wants some nice things for the house. Like, she wants some nice things to be able to keep the house clean or nice things for the car. It's like, okay, well, we, you know, we can do that, but where are we going to sacrifice? You know, where are we going to dial down so that we can dial up for that? You know, and kind of just talking about it that way has made it a lot easier for us to talk instead of just the brunt sheer force of the numbers. Like this just numerically makes sense. She doesn't think in numbers like I do, <laughs> not at all. And so it, it's been good to be able to adjust the way that I communicate with her. I'm so pleased to hear that. I know this is a trap that many money experts fall into. So I work with a number of folks that are financial planners and their partners are not. I, I have, like, I thought becoming an MBA CFP was going to be the greatest gift to my family ever. And no, it was like a bag of crap for a while because I started acting more like a know-it-all than very helpful. And I, I couldn't see it. It took me becoming a therapist to understand that. And that speaks more to me than anything else. But you know, I think there is there is in many couples, whether you have someone who's a technical, like CFP type financial planner expert, it's not uncommon for there to be one person that's more knowledgeable about money and a variety of different topics related to money. And that can create a power imbalance in the relationship. And so I love the wisdom that you're saying is I have to remember that she doesn't think about all this all the time. You have a kind of an almost second responsibility to remember, like, we're not equal in this area in absorbed knowledge, but we're equal in the impact of our financial decisions, right? And so, like, getting to that sense of relational balance is, is the real trick. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And it, it's a work in progress. I mean, I, I've been, I'm coming up on 17 years and it's, it's still, it's, the teeter totter is better, but it, it still gets a little out of balance from time to time. So, well, Aaron, 
I'm so glad that you took some time out of your your busy summer schedule, internship, finishing up college to, to talk with me. I'm thrilled for you and the work that you're doing and the journey you're on and the clients that you're going to impact. And I hope that you'd be a guest again in the future as you continue to go down the road. Yeah, absolutely, Ed. It was an honor to be here and to talk with you. I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks so much. I invite you now to stop for five or 10 minutes and reflect on what you just heard. Maybe even journal about it. Give yourself the time to consider what you just heard and what it means to you. By giving yourself the time to reflect and integrate what you just heard, it will help you along your journey of learning, healing, and growing towards financial intimacy in your life. Please like and follow this podcast and share with someone that would benefit from being on the journey of financial intimacy. Wishing you healthy love and money, Ed. Ed.